So my name is April Christofferson, and today we're going to talk about um, pediatric development. Uh, I'm an occupational therapist. I am from Colorado. Uh, for the past eight years, I've worked at a pediatric outpatient clinic that we have served um, all populations from birth to 18, sometimes a little older, but looking at genetic disorders, looking at um, acquired disorders, acquired brain injury, um, post-concussion syndrome. We've got a lot. We actually just opened a trauma clinic uh, two years ago, um, and one of my lead therapists is here. One of my, one of my really good friends is here this morning. Her name is Christine. Um, so we have some resources for you. Um, hopefully we can help you as well if you have questions. But just let me um, figure out who you guys are. Who works in the field with pediatrics hands-on right now? Okay. So who's interested in working in pediatrics? All right, that's awesome. Um, who has kids? <laughs> okay, great. So, uh, and grandkids, awesome. I'm not quite there yet, but, but soon. Okay, uh, medical professionals or medical students, give me a, a hand. Any, any other therapists in here, OTPT speech? Oh, yay, what are you? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I'm I'm good with it. Yeah, I should have known you're so you're dressed up. That's good. Um, I always say OTs look like we belong in the field, like the field, like farmers, the field. So I'm I'm definitely the uh, <laughs> exception to the rule. What kind of a therapist are you? A physical therapist. Okay. Are you wearing your khakis today? We're good. Okay. Wow. You. That is awesome. What kind of a therapist? OT. We have an OT in the room. I'm, I'm good. Okay. We have two OTs in the room. Okay. Well, we're, um, we're going to keep going here. So what I want to start with this morning is sensory processing. We are sensory beings. God made us with such an amazing um, brain and everything starts in the brain and then our brain tells our body how to react with everything. So what is sensory processing? Well, sensory integration is the organization of sensation for use. Our senses give us information about the physical conditions of the body and the environment around us. So when I talk about this, we're going we're gonna to use some hands-on um, examples today. But what we're going to talk about are five systems, vision, hearing, taste, touch, and smell. Okay, and we're going to talk about these systems in relation to um, normal and or atypical child development and how this can affect. And some of you who have young children yourselves or you work in the field with children or you have ever been to Walmart at 5 o'clock on um, any weekday, you will have seen some of the things that I'm talking about. So what I like to explain this is um, like a sensory superhighway. The brain locates, sorts, and orders sensations somewhat like the way a traffic light directs moving cars. When sensations flow in a well-organized or integrated manner, the brain uses those sensations to form perceptions, behaviors, and learning. But when the flow of that traffic or the sensation is disorganized, life can be like a rush hour traffic jam. And we're going to talk about this in relation to neuro. So neuro is obviously brain. And again, I mentioned this at the very beginning. Your brain directs your body to do everything it does. I cannot drink my coffee without my brain sending signals to uh, my core to activate, to stabilize. 
Because if I'm moving around like this, it's going to be really hard for me to drink, right? So I have to activate my core. I've got to, I've got to stabilize my shoulder. I've got to extend my arm. I have to have just the right, um, you know, angle. And I'm not a math person, so oh, holy cow. If I had to do math in my brain, like, this is the angle you need for your cup. Your brain is doing those things in milliseconds, okay? And sometimes in microseconds, you're not even thinking about that. And when this is disrupted... For any reason, if you are distracted, have you ever, um, well, we're all tired. So if you go to the airport on Sunday and you've got lots of stuff going through your brain and you maybe haven't had a lot of sleep and you're just full, you're just full to the brim and there's an escalator and you try to get on the escalator, how many of you are going to have to pause before you actually step on that escalator, right? Because your sensations are overflowing, okay? Maybe you're tired. Maybe maybe you're thinking about something else. Um, you know, there's a lot of reasons. Maybe you're hungry. Um, when we talk about sensory processing disorder, I talk about this in relation to what I call Sam's Club on Drugs. Okay, so we are going into the holiday season, and um, if you dare go into Sam's Club on a weekend, like on a Saturday or something like that, and you think, oh, I'm just going to run in and get milk, or, you know, I just have a couple of things to get. Well, hold on to your seats, because there is going to be a lot going on. A child who has sensory processing disorder, it's like Sam's Club on drugs every day. So if I were to tell you, okay, here's, here's the plan. We're going to go to Sam's Club on a Saturday morning at 9 a.m. We're going to sit down in the middle of Sam's Club, and I am going to put up a whiteboard, and I'm going to teach you a new calculus equation. And I'm going to test you on this an hour later. So you have to sit there, and you have to learn this new math equation. Okay, For me, the word math, just my heart rate goes up a little bit, because I married a guy who's good at math. That's, that's how I'm good at math. I married someone who's good at it, so I don't have to do it, right? We all know our weaknesses, but a child who has issues with sensory processing, they're going to sit there, and there's going to be any, any number of things. So when I, when I present this this uh, word picture to you, and I tell you, you're going to have to sit in Sam's Club, and you're going to have to sit there and learn this equation. What goes through your brain? What, what are you starting to feel like if that was really you? Your heart rate might go up. You might, to, might start to feel like, you know, I, I, I can't learn in this environment. There's too much noise. There's too much smell. There's too many lights. There's too many people. So a lot of us would want to escape that, right? Like, if I could just get to a quiet place, I could learn, right? I could, I could actually sit down and maybe focus on this. So, so maybe what we do is we try to climb under the table, okay? Or we, we consistently have to go to the bathroom. I'm gonna go, I'll just be in the bathroom. I'll just be in there for a minute. I just need to escape for a minute, okay? So our coping mechanisms set in, and we don't even realize it, but a child with sensory processing delays or sensory integration, that is every moment of every day. That, that high stress of sit there and learn this and know you cannot move. I'm sorry, we have 25 other people in this classroom, and you're one of them. So if you need to go to the bathroom, we will have a break in two hours, okay? That, that is school in America, but we also see this in that children will, will um, hold it together. I, I have four kids of my own. 
Now 23, okay, let me think about this. 23, 21, 19, 14. I have to do it in a row or I forget. So um, when my 23-year-old was in school, he would hold it together. We homeschooled him for quite some time because he couldn't hold it together as a youngster. But when he got older um, into high school, he would hold it together in school all day. And then he would come home and punish me, <laughs> okay? So I, I felt good because I thought, well, I raised him right. He, he, he can hold it together around, you know, peers and teachers, and he's respectful. But, boy, when he got home, it was tough. And that's the other part that we see with sensory processing disorder is um, – a lot of these kids will hold it together, and then the family suffers. So if you are working with families who say, you know, um, the teachers say he's great, or when he goes, you know, when he goes to Sunday school, he does just fine, but when he comes home, it's a nightmare. And I will tell you firsthand that this is hard on marriages, this is hard on couples, this is hard on families. My other children definitely, um, to this day, will kind of twitch when they, whenever they know that Drew's in a mood. And he's 23 and he's married, and I just pray for his wife every day. And I go, you know, he needs to sleep. <laughs> like, and, and, he needs, and he needs meals like every three hours. Like, I've learned this about him. Um, but it, it doesn't just go away. We learn to cope. So another thing that um, I like to explain this at is, does anybody in here have any quirks? Do you know what a quirk is? So, like, I'll, I'll give you an example. If my feet are cold, I cannot sleep. So I have to put socks on. I just, I literally cannot sleep. I've gotten up at 1 in the morning to put socks on because I thought I could sleep without socks on. Anybody else have any quirks? Do you know what I'm talking about? That, like, you separate your food into different piles. Um, maybe when you're putting gas in your car, you have to stop on 0 or 5 or 3 or whatever that number. Yeah, I'm seeing some nods. Okay. Um, what are some other quirks? Um, uh, people that have feeding, like, I can't eat onions. I love Mexican food. You put an onion that has enough of a texture in it, I will gag. Okay, so there's little things like that, and these are quirks. And as adults, we laugh about those, right? We're like, oh, yeah, that's just a quirk. That's just me. <laughs> I'm just kind of weird. Um, and we have to kind of be careful who we tell those to, right, because people do start to look at you a little funny. Um, you know, and then they're like, hmm, maybe we shouldn't leave our kids with them anymore. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't, you know, maybe, maybe we're busy on Friday night. <laughs> um, so we laugh about those, but children who have quirks, we call them issues. So they, they, they have an issue. They have a feeding issue. Um, he has an issue with jeans. He can't wear jeans. That's his issue. Well, maybe he just doesn't, you know, any, any of you get bugged by tags or the little seam on your sock? Okay, a child who has sensory processing disorder, that's that Sam's Club on drugs I was talking about, okay? That little seam in the sock is enough to throw them into overdrive, and that's when you see the behaviors come on. So just as we need a metabolic diet. We need fruits and vegetables. We need proteins. We need grains. We need water. We need everything to keep our bodies physically in health. We also need sensory nutrition. When I talk about sensory nutrition, we all have a rhythm. And it starts with your circadian rhythm. Your circadian rhythm is your sleep-wake cycle, okay? If you are, and anybody in here um, um, a little bit sleep-deprived today at all? Okay, I've got some students here that are sleep-deprived. That's probably a habit for you. 
Um, we have a new mom in the room. Christina's a new mom. And I, I you know, I, I love it. I love little Hudson. But I remember going through the new mom stage. And, you know, the first week, it's like, yeah, this is awesome. I'm so blessed to be a mom. This is such a blessing. And week two, you're like, such a blessing. Such a blessing. It was such a blessing. Week three, you're like, I, yeah, it's a blessing. Uh huh. Loving this. And after a while, because you're sleep deprived, excuse me, sleep deprived, you start to crave. What do you crave? Chocolate. You crave quick carbs, like, you know, like, just get me to Qdoba and I will eat every chip behind the counter. Um, you know, you start to crave the quick energy, um, because your body needs that energy in order to think. So um, we know that about our bodies. But with a sensory diet, with sensory nutrition, we need the same thing. And everybody is a little bit different. And some of us who aren't morning people, we need our coffee right away in the morning. And it's not just the coffee, it's the aroma. Our brains have learned to wake up to the smell of coffee. Um, some children need a crunchy diet in the morning to wake up their bodies and their brains. Actually, when you eat crunchy food, you are getting bone conduction input into your body. Okay? So it's, it's a double, it's a double whammy. Um, some kids do great in the morning, but then by mid-afternoon, they're, they're on their low and they've held it together. I can't do it anymore. And their sensory break might look like, 10 minutes on the trampoline or, you know, let's go to the park for 15 minutes. And I got really good at this with my oldest child. And this is before sensory was, uh, you know, was even really recognized. We're talking 23 years ago. We would go to the park every morning for an hour and every afternoon for an hour and every night we would go on a walk. That's why I was able to lose the body, the baby weight, because he, he forced it on me. You know, the kid was just busy, but he needed that sensory diet. Other kids need that quiet time, okay? And I, I kind of get that way sometimes too, like just leave me alone and let me just be, like don't talk to me, I've got too much information coming in. I can verbalize that. But children who are not able to verbalize that, we need to help them recognize this is part of your sensory diet. You need a break. You need to just have a minute to yourself. So we've got two kinds of sensory kids I'm going to talk to you about today. An over-responder, um, meaning everything that comes in is, is overkill. So, you know, um, let's see. If there was a fan on in the room today, that would be too much for them. Like that, that noise would be exacerbated. Um, if, uh, if the vacuum was running, that's too, too they might, you know, uh, put their hands over their ears. So um, they might get aggressive when they're touched or bumped, and they might even say, ow, 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 like that, because that's what my oldest one used to do, like overkill. I'm like, <laughs> and I'm a suck it up mom. I, I would look at him and I'd go, you're fine, you know, but, but he really, it made him angry because, it, you know, he didn't like that. Avoidance, they will, these kids will avoid once they learn that they're over-responsive to input. They will avoid things. Um, they will get into a lot of fights because they're defending their space. Stay away from me. Okay? They're picky eaters, and they're very defensive with new foods because, again, the foods that we present to them, you, do you realize that you don't taste unless you smell first? 
So if your olfactory system, if you have a cold, you typically, you know, you'll be able to tolerate really spicy foods. But um, kids with the over-responsitivity, um, everything tastes just magnified. Okay, so some kids will even say that coffee smells like poop because it's, it's so intense for them. So they, they are picky eaters. They are very defensive with new foods, anything new. This, these are the kids that like mac and cheese. They, um, you know, they like the bland carbohydrate foods, okay? Um, they won't touch different textures. Um, they will avoid bubbles. They'll avoid Play-Doh. And this, isn't, this is not a hard and fast rule. Excuse me, I have... Um, I think my allergies are kicking in today or something. I don't know, but I'll, I'll try to get through this. <laughs> so this is not a hard and fast rule for all kids. So some kids might be able to tolerate Play-Doh um, and gooey stuff, while other kids can't even handle um, sand. You know, something, it really is different for every child. Um, they will also refuse to let others help them with their hair and their nails. They won't get haircuts. You see a lot of kids with long hair today. It's not because it's a trend. Um, you know, it's probably because they just can't tolerate sitting in the barber chair and letting someone cut their hair. They'll actually say it hurts. They, they will actually, um, you know, think that it's actually going to hurt them. These kids also refuse to wear certain textures or clothing. Um, these are kids that they tear the tags out of their clothes, every, every clothes. So my, my son had holes in the back of every T-shirt because he would tear the tag out. Now Old Navy and, you know, Gap has gotten smart, and they just imprint. <laughs> they imprint the tags. So we don't have any tags anymore, which is awesome. These are also kids that withdraw when they're in a crowd. They don't like a lot of people because they might get touched. They might get bumped. I might have to defend my space. Now we have the other end. We have the over uh, the seeker. So everything that comes in with them, so the taste, it's never intense enough. The touch is never enough. I need more, more, more. And they're what we would call a seeker. They're hyperactive. They're constantly trying to get movement. They're impulsive. Okay? I had a little boy in the clinic who... Um, literally within 15 seconds could crawl up on the table and get whatever was on the highest shelf and be, be doing this. And I'm, you know, and then my, my, my professional mind is going liability and my mom mind is going don't, don't kill the kid. And, you know, so these are kids that are so impulsive. If you leave your cell phone anywhere near these kids, it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> okay. Um, Risk takers, okay? These are the ones that if you go to Cabela's or you go to Bass Pro Shops, they're the ones that have climbed on all the taxidermy before you even turn around. They're on the elk. They're on the lion. And you're like, Hi, that's, whose child is that? I don't know who that is. They have a decreased response to pain. A lot of kids with this seeker or under-responsivity, they won't even realize they've been burned or cut or hurt until they see it. When they see the blood, then they freak out because that scares them. But I had a little girl who um, literally had burned both of her hands, and she had blisters on them, didn't even realize that she had third-degree burns on her hands because her body and brain was not responsive. 
responding to the pain appropriately like our body and brain would respond. These are kids that are unable to sit and listen. We will um, label them as ADHD or ADD. Okay, we will label them um, and we will, they're, they're really hard in a class like this. So in a classroom this big, you know, anymore what the teachers are starting to say is that they have 15 to 25% of their kids with ADD or autism. So what I would like to know is, is it under-responsivity? Are they seekers? Are they sensory seekers? Or do they truly have a brain you know, anomaly or something atypical that is causing them to not be able to pay attention. Is it a neuroprocessing thing or is it a sensory thing? And these are things that we have to determine. These are also kids who don't know where they are in space a lot. So they're clumsy. They're falling down a lot. Like my kid always falls. You know, my, my number four kid, he's, he's a great athlete, but he was not the, and he's also a sensory kid. He had so many bumps and bruises on his head when he was little. And um, I, you know, I, after a while, you start to think someone's going to think I'm beating my child. But um, he would literally, he'd be sitting on the, on the stairs, and he'd just plop over, like, and just hit his head. Um, so he was a little bit delayed on the whole, you know, um, reaction timing thing. But he's, he's grown out of it, thankfully. Um, these are also kids that touch everything. Touch, 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 touch. Okay, they're, they're, and, and they need to be touching you if they're not touching something else. So moms and dads out there, these are the kids that are constantly on you. Okay, forever they're on you. Um, and they'll even step, you know, they'll try to even be on your feet. Like if, if I know where your feet are and I can just ride on your feet, then I don't have to worry about where my body is in space. Okay. Um, they like spicy, crunchy, carbonated, and sour foods. So let's talk a little bit about what motor milestones are, and then we're going to the second half of my talk today. Um, if you're staying, we are going to get into what actually goes on with the sensory systems. Um, but I want to give you a foundation for what we're looking for with motor milestones. Your main development happens within the first few years of your life. And when we look at children, like if a child comes into my office at seven years old and mom says, you know, I've just always wondered if there wasn't something a little different about this child. And we, you know, I always look at the mom and I go, you know, you're, you're right. But the doctors say, oh, he'll grow out of it. You know, she'll, she'll grow out of it. It's just a stage. Well, what we're learning now through research and development is that that's not always true. We can now know by the age of 18 months if we have an atypically developed child who is at risk for autism. And I would even tell you that in my 25 years of doing this, I could probably identify that at six months because there are just some markers that, that we know. So what we want to look for in a child is that are they quote-unquote normal? And with a baby, I do like to give about eight weeks of grace here, okay? So if a child um, by four months is not using their hands to self-support with sitting, let's, let's give them to six months to see if they grow out of it. Some kids do just need a little bit more time. If a child is born uh, prematurely, we want to double that um, grace period. So if a child is born eight weeks early, I'm going to give them 16 
18 weeks to catch up to developmental milestones, okay? Um, and that goes up until about the age of two. But I will tell you that even at age seven, I could identify those kids that were born prematurely because there are still some markers. So this PowerPoint will be available for you all. Um, I'm going to have Will put it up on the, on the site as well because I do think that um, this is a good guide for you. But what we're looking for with motor milestones is strictly four to six months, we have a lot of motor stuff going on. And you can see that from um, the list up here. This is where we um, get our initial eye tracking. This is where we learn to use our hands. Okay, we're bringing our, we're, we're learning where our body is in space because these are kids that they, they're taking off their socks and they're rolling around and things like that, all perfectly normal. But communication-wise, we're, we're setting the foundation for um, our communication between four and six months. These are kids that should still startle when uh, loud or unexpected noises happen, um, but they also respond and listen. Um, they begin to babble and they use babbling to get attention. Um, they imitate so sounds and facial expressions, and then they also notice toys that make noise. This is that marker I was telling you about with autism. These are kids that don't make eye contact, okay? This is also something to be aware of when you look at children who have been adopted, okay, or who have a trauma background. We look at reactive attachment disorder at this age. This is really important. So those kids that come from orphanages that don't get the eye contact from their caregiver, they don't get the swaddling, they don't get the human touch, they are going to miss this communication because this communication is two-way, okay? They are responding to noise and communication, okay, in their brain. From seven to nine months, where again, we're developing a lot of motor milestones. Um, we're starting to use both hands now to pick up toys and explore toys. If at this age, we are only, if, if we've created a dominance, if, if I have a, a mom who brings in a, a seven or an eight-month-old, and she says, well, he is right-handed already. He's right-handed, and I'm like, not good, because <laughs> you shouldn't be right-handed by seven months, okay? You should be using both hands. We're ambidextrous. We don't create a dominance until we have the stability foundationally to use one side or the other. If we are creating a dominance by this time, it would mean that the other side is weak, okay? So if I'm right-handed at seven months, it probably means that I'm, something's going on with my left side, okay? We need to be looking at that. Um, we're starting to separate the sides of hands by this, by this time. And do you know that this, again, is the foundation for writing? At seven to nine months, babies are creating the foundation for writing by exploring toys with their hands. Because what they're doing is they're, they're strengthening the radial side of their hand versus the ulnar side of their hand. Okay, so well, whereas at six months we were grabbing everything in a raking motion, now what we're doing is we're starting to separate, and I'm going to stabilize the pinky side of my hand. I'm going to start using the thumb and first finger side of my hand, okay? This is the foundation for writing. If at nine months I still have a baby who is 
doing the raking and putting things in, you know, Cheerios into his mouth like this, you know, stuffing, that's, that's a red flag for me, okay? So we, we can look at these things. Also, starting to pull to stand. And um, do you know that a baby learns by failure, okay? And the, what I mean by that is they get instant feedback if they failed on something. If they try to stand up and walk, and they're not ready, they're going to fall. And that's instant feedback on, you're not ready, try again, try again. Those children who fail and then don't try again are at risk, maturically, for their development. Okay, these are kids, if the, and if the parent says, well, you know, he, he went straight from, uh, straight from sitting to walking, and to skip that whole crawling thing altogether. Big red flag, okay? Because at seven to nine months, what we are developing is what's called in, um, interhemispheric integration, reciprocal motor movement, okay? And reciprocal motor movement would be right hand, left foot. This is crawling, okay? So if you have someone who's commando crawling all the time, you have a baby who's commando crawling and just pulling themselves and not doing reciprocal motor movement, okay, or is, is only doing that with one side and then scooting and doing it with one side, we have some red flags there. Skipping crawling is a huge red flag because we're not developing that reciprocal motor movement in our brains that we need, and that is the foundation of walking, okay? Um, these are kids um, at seven to nine months. Um, I'm sorry. So children at seven to nine months are recognizing the sound of their name. They are following routine commands, and they're using gestures. They know familiar and unfamiliar voices. They show recognition of commonly used words. And they mimic, okay? Um, and they're going to use their hand gestures to tell you what they want. So they'll do this, pick me up, mom, pick me up, okay? Or if they don't want something, they'll do this. You know, they'll, they'll use um, their body communication before they actually use language communication. But they're learning social cues. So a child who is at risk for autism um, will not communicate at all in those ways, okay? So these children um, are not going to tell you what they need. They might just sit and scream. <laughs> and then it's up to you to go, okay, Jeopardy, what is it today? You know, what is it right now that they might need? Um, also, they're going to show recognition of commonly used words. No. <laughs> or... Um, dog or dada, you know, by this age, most kids know the commonly used words in the home and whatever that looks like. Motor milestones up to 12 months, we are going to start standing alone, taking steps, sitting unsupported. We should be clapping by now, um, and we are going to be using our thumb and finger to pick up tiny objects. So instead of picking up two or three Cheerios at once, we're going to be picking up just one. Communication, 10 to 12 months, this is when communication is really starting to kick in. And the reason I'm talking a little more about communication is I think that motor milestones are much easier to check off. Even though I'm an OT and I know more about motor, um, communication milestones are the precursor to a lot of the genetics. Yeah, my speech therapist is over here going, yay. Um, but they are, the, they are the precursor to a lot of what we're seeing genetically. Um, 
But I would even tell you that you could identify trauma issues. You could I identify, again, that reactive attachment disorder. You could identify autism just by the communication that is missing in these children at about a year of age. And so if you're working with children or you're working in the field and you start to see someone or a child who's just a little different or the mom, you know, as, as parents, we, we want to we, – we want the best for our children. And so even with my kids, I would – not necessarily make excuses, but I would speak for my, my oldest son, and I would say, oh, you know, he just, he just doesn't like strangers, or, um, you know, oh, he, he's just tired right now, or whatever it is, to make up for the fact that he was having a complete meltdown, you know, in the back of Walmart. It always happens when your cart is full, and, and the line is long, and you're in the back of Walmart, you know, or something, but they, they have a very difficult time communicating. Um, normal Typically developed children will start to respond to simple directions. They'll produce long strings of gibberish called jargoning in social communication. They'll start to imitate, say, one to two words. They're babbling, and they pay attention to where you are looking and pointing. Children who are at risk are typically very quiet. Okay. They're not going to be babbling. They're not using jargon. They are quiet. Okay. And um, it's amazing at, at this age how a child learns what to do or what not to do in a trauma situation if they're in an abusive home. If any of you are working in the inner cities and you're working you know, with, with um, just really rough neighborhoods, children learn really, really, really quickly how to self-regulate and not speak or not, um, you know, not make noise as to create more chaos in the environment. Motor milestones between 13 and 18 months. We are starting to use everything that foundationally we have created up to this point. So we're walking independently. We're squatting to pick up a toy. This is where we can really see if there is weakness in one side of the body or the other. You have a child who has a really hard time with um, what I call the balance task. So I should, you know, a child should be able to, to, to squat. You see that all the time. They're able to squat and pick up a toy. And, you know, they're like little weevils wobble, but they don't fall down, you know, kids. And they should be able to do that. Um, also, with fine motor tasks, Excuse me. They are starting to scribble. The, these are kids also that that are great with doorknobs. Okay, by this age, we should be able to, to open any door or any cabinet. This is again the precursor for fine motor and writing skills because at this age, we are learning to dissociate our wrist movement. Okay, and if we don't have wrist movement, then we are going to write like this. Okay, and we do see that with children who have delays with writing is they use a whole arm movement because way back when, at about 15 months, they weren't dissociating or breaking up the pieces of their body. So at this age is when we really start to, to break up the pieces of our body. So arm dissociates from our body. Neck dissociates from head. Um, this is also really important when we look at feeding, okay, and jaw strength and things like this because this is where the stability comes in, all right? And so a child who drools all the time at this age, a child who's not able to do lip closure, a child who um, uh, is only eating soft foods and not actually chewing, those are red flags, 
okay? There's something else going on. We might call that a low-tone child. A low-tone child, again, is at risk for any other atypical development or diagnosis that we will be talking about a little bit later today. Drinking from a cup without slobbering too much, I mean, we expect a little bit, but, you know, and, and here's the thing. From a very early age, you can tell these kids because it's how they suckle on a bottle or a nipple. If they are able to um, latch on and if they're able to do lip closure, that's the beginning of this. By this age, we know if there's some abnormal development because their feeding isn't going as well and they're, they're fine motor. Communication. It's really ramping up. They're recognizing the sound of their name. They're participating in two-way communication, using hand movements, showing recognition of commonly used words, and they are doing a lot of mimicking of facial expressions and gestures. By 19 to 24 months, these kids are now using, our kids, by about two years of age, they're using everything that they should have learned by now. So they are scribbling. They are turning knobs. They're, they're able to do these things independently. Self-feeding with minimal assistance. Um, they are bringing utensils to their mouth. Um, they're holding and drinking uh, from a cup. Kids by the age of two who aren't using utensils, red flag. Okay? Kids by the age of two who are still on a bottle, red flag because they're suckling. They're not drinking. There's a difference between a suckle and an actual drink, okay? At age two, we want to break that suckle pattern, okay? It's one of the reasons why pediatricians tell you not to use a binky after a certain age because it reinforces the suckle pattern, okay? By the way, that's my number three kid who's now 19, and he was the cutest baby. I always say this. He was the cutest of all the four of them. Um, all four of them know this, and he knows this, which is not to his advantage, but um, he, <laughs> he's just my, he, he's just such a fun kid. Okay. Um, so milestones, motor milestones up to three um, years old, we are now stringing on a string large beads. This is the precursor for dressing skills, okay? Turning single pages of a book, snipping with scissors, okay? And when I talk about scissors, I'm not talking about give your three-year-old scissors, and let them snip everything in the house and see if they're normally developed. No, because I did that. Actually, I didn't. But when we brought our second daughter home, my oldest son took the scissors and cut all of the corners off of all of my throw pillows on all my couches and gave all the stuffed animals a haircut. Um, so I'm like, great, you're, you're, you're developing normally. Uh, there's that. Um, and I get to redecorate. So there's that, right? Um, so, you know, that's what they should be doing with... Uh, supervision. Obviously, it was not supervising. Um, at this point, they are starting to really separate to hold a utensil with the thumb and first and second finger, okay? So if a child is still grabbing um, a crayon and they're using it in a way that they're fisted and their thumb is up, that's a red flag for development. What we want at this age is thumb down when we're writing, 
Okay, thumb down. So if any of you in here are still fisting it, we need to talk. All right, so after the, and I know that our handwriting in America has gone downhill um, fast, so, um, you know, we can, we can definitely talk. But we are also um, seeing that they are imitating. They're starting to use round, circular, um, you know, straight strokes. They're, they're, they're crossing midline with what they're doing. And midline is this this place in your body right here, okay, and they're starting to cross midline. That's interhemispheric integration again. Okay, so we're going to talk a little bit about vision, hearing, taste, touch, and smell in the second um, half of this. We have, um, we have about a 15-minute break between sessions. Um, is anybody in here, does anybody have any questions up to this point, anything I can answer for you, anything that... Um, even if it's not related to what we've talked about with, with regard to development. I'll, I'll open up for about five minutes of questions. Yes? So I live and work in Cameroon, and Cameroonians are obsessed about cleanliness, which drives me nuts. They don't let their babies crawl because the floor is dirty. Oh. And they're always carrying their babies on their back. And so I see a lot of a little bit delayed motor, but that's almost because of context and not exposure. So do they ever crawl? Sometimes, yes. If, if they've swept the floor fully and they think it's clean enough for them, yeah. But, but then um, how do they develop their walking? I mean, like, how do they develop their motor milestones? Usually their walking and crawling space is very small. Like okay. Like four feet or a really small bedroom that they've cleaned sufficiently enough for that. Okay. Well, are you seeing other delays with that? So, the, so the, the key here would be, is that paired with other delays? Because typically you have co-occurring delays. You have co-occurring fine motor, gross motor, and speech delays whenever you have delays with children, which is why I gave you kind of the big picture. So um, it sounds like they're doing okay with that. I would just... Well, we, we need to encourage it, but um, also there is something to be said for that carrying, you know, if they are being carried on the back from a vestibular standpoint, that's awesome. That's really good, you know, for them. Other questions? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So your neural pathways in your brain develop, you know, specifically to you individually. And we can have two brain-injured kids with the same area of the brain damaged and have two completely different outcomes. So what, one of the things that we have to recognize is that there is not a blueprint for this, that every child will recover differently. I mean, you know, there are miracles happening all over. Um, you know, God can heal and he can do amazing things. Um, but sometimes that's not, that's not the path for some children. Um, so, yes, absolutely. Um, what we know about the brain, though, is that it does regenerate, um, and it depends on what type of damage. Um, so the, the tough part about this is, is that if I had a, um, a two-year-old who had a brain injury versus a 20-year-old who had a brain injury, the 20-year-old who was developed normally for 20 years before the brain injury will probably recover quicker with less effects because what we're doing is we're relearning 
we're not new learning. A two-year-old who has a, a, a cessation of their development because of a brain injury, now it's new learning. So, so they've never learned. They've never created these neural pathways. So we have to actually do the, the learning with them. And it takes anywhere from 8,000 to 24,000 repetitions to create a pathway, a neural pathway. Um, researchers just can't put their handle on it. I favor closer to 20,000 repetitions in, in my experience, what I've seen. Um, what that means is that you have to practice the motor skill or the developmental skill that many times to create a neural pathway that will be used effectively by the brain. Okay? So to walk, we have to practice walking. To learn to walk, we have to practice, 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 which kids do. And I'm guessing that, Christine, when Hudson starts to walk, you're not going to be sitting there with your uh, tablet going, that's one, that's two, that's three. You know, that, okay, you're at 8,000 repetitions. You should be walking, you know, independently. So it really depends on what the pre-learning is and, you know, what the foundation is and then how healthy they are. And so what we didn't talk about a lot was metabolic. Diet has a lot to do with this, and nutrition has a lot to do with this, and this is why children who come from lower income, lower socioeconomic classes, who do not have good nutrition, typically will take longer for recovery and or habilitation. So if I have a child with autism from a lower socioeconomic status versus a child with autism from a family who... Um, maybe lives in a more affluent neighborhood, mom is, is mindful of diet, mom, you know, is making sure he's drinking enough water, getting enough sleep, that child will typically recover or habilitate faster um, than a child who is not getting that nutrition and care. So, yes. Oh, I have one. I'll get to you next. <laughs> So communication and motor, or, or just, or, like just one. one or the other, um, it would be the area of the brain that's deficient. Okay. Um, not necessarily. You're talking about environmental versus um, physical. And so typically if you have communication issues, that's a red flag of, of some sort of trauma. Um, with motor issues, it's an indication of damage. To some, of some sort, like injury and or, um, you know, maybe lack of oxygen at birth, um, different things like that. But, but communication, um, I look at as, as a red flag for what, what happened that this child is not making eye contact. And that can be an indication of autism and or, you know, something else going on. Yes. Uh, so what she's asking, for those of you that, that maybe couldn't hear her, is that um, they're seeing a lot of um, cerebral damage from malaria, and, and it's cost prohibitive for these families to stay in the hospital, receive care at the hospital. I'm guessing travel is an issue as well if they live farther away from the hospital. Um, so this is, this is a worldwide problem. Um, I will tell you, in affluent America, sending parents home with home programs is, it, it's, you know, who knows what's going to happen. Um, usually it's not followed through with. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a great idea. There's not a great model for this. However, I, I will tell you that 
um, we are in the age of technology. And so that um, now one of the models that we are using here, even for children who are being homeschooled, would be that teletherapy. So it's, you know, you Skype in and you meet with your therapist and your therapist watches the movement patterns of the child, watches the communication patterns of the child. Um, and we're actually, you know, trying to, uh, Christine and I have had many conversations about this. Actually, her husband has started these conversations like there has to be a way to introduce therapy like this to these families that can't afford it, that, you know, aren't, don't live near the hospital. So my advice to you would be just, um, you know, home programs that are concise but simple, you know, and, and they're very well laid out, so it's not overwhelming. Most parents will tell you that I just, I just couldn't do it. It was too complicated, you know. It's, and if we complicate things, what we want is we want the child exploring their environment. And that's a problem in Cameroon when they can't explore their environment. But if you can get them to explore their environment in a safe manner and then give them these motor milestones of here's what we're looking for. The next time you come back, we want to see that the child is crawling right, left, you know, or, or simple, simple milestones. Um, don't get caught up on the details is what I would tell you. Um, but, no, there's not a perfect model, and I wish that there was more resources. Yeah, I know. It's not really the answer you wanted, is it? <laughs> so, um, okay, so if anybody needs to leave, go for it. Otherwise, I can keep taking questions. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so, well, both. You want to give them a couple of months to catch up maybe, um, start to um, kind of, there are ways to, you know, get them into a little ball, and what you're going to do is you're, gonna, you're going to facilitate that movement pattern that you want. Yeah, you're going to facilitate it, and you're going to try to get them doing it. If they're not able to grasp it, if they're having a really hard time with it at that point, I would seek a physical therapist or an occupational therapist who could give you a little more development developmental, foundational information. So, so say that I made a referral, and, and say we're at 36 months old, is that early intervention, I mean, is that sort of, is that kid uh, already... Um, is it too late? No, 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 no. Always, always, absolutely. Um, yeah, I would say... So at eight years of old, that kid's going to be far better off, far further ahead. Absolutely. Yes. And that's the magic, not the magic, it's the blessing of how God created our brains. Um, 25 years ago, they told us that if there was damage to the brain, you need to just and not worry about it. Right? Stimulation. And, and you have to drive the timing in the brain. You have to drive the motor planning and timing. That's the foundation for everything. So, good question. Thanks, everybody. And if you're staying for the next one, we'll start in about uh, seven minutes.